The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Joda Arnold. We're going to be talking about offshore drillers, where we are in the banking crisis, and good old SPACs. So, Judd, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get interested involved in markets? And what are you doing currently? Awesome. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on. So, I am a stockbroker's kid. My dad still runs a, a pile of money, active management, does a great job. That's how I got into investing. I went to Indiana to run track and cross country. I gracefully retired my freshman year. I was running 120 miles a week and thought there was more to life. I ended up getting an internship at Lehman Brothers in banking, worked there for, I interned, worked there for a little over a year. And I started a career in distressed debt. I worked at two big funds, King Street and Anchorage. I started as the energy guy, but I also covered a lot of other sectors. Then I pivoted and went to Citadel when they relaunched their event-driven or merger arm group. My team spun out, launched a hedge fund at Newberger Berman, did that for a while. And for the last couple of years, I've been running my own money and advising other hedge funds and family offices just on the idea generation. Basically, my day job is I try to come up with three to five big ideas a year and five to 10 trades and try to have some fun. How influential was your father in the path that you took. So you and I are not that dissimilar in that my father, when he was live, obviously was a hedge fund manager and ran money as well. I had my own kind of experiences growing up, but or you were like the most formative thing as you get older, you sort of realize this with other people that, that you meet is my dad has worked for himself his whole life and especially as an investor. So he comes home from work, we're at dinner and there is just no filter in criticizing anybody. And my dad is the most genuine, nice guy you'll ever meet. But growing up with just the culture of debate and that nothing is sacred and we want to inquire and see things through, as well as the idea that you can be wrong about things and so forth. And so how that impacted me a lot, not just seeing him and seeing the excitement and seeing how much he likes his life, but just the idea that anywhere you go, you can always ask questions and you can disagree with people, especially people of extreme authority. So I never had a problem telling teachers I thought they were wrong, which is both good and bad. And I'd say early in my career, certainly that I just lack any flashing red light to to talk to anybody or disagree with anybody when I think they're wrong, which is both a good and a bad trait. But that's, I'd say on the whole, that's been a very positive thing for me. And I think early in my career, especially that really helped me have 
probably an irrational confidence that I could do what I was doing. But, you know, you got to earn it over time and it all works out. I will say, I think that point about the kind of skepticism in the blood is something that I probably share with you. And, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be skeptical in the business of investment management, because if you're going to be active, that means you're skeptical that passive is it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, my dad, it's funny. My my dad has one of the best investment records of any guy I've ever seen. And I moved back to Minnesota in 2020, you know, during COVID and whatnot. I'm like, dad, we got to put together the track record and whatnot. And now granted, you know, the bears will say, well, his two biggest positions are Apple and Amazon. And he's been that way for about 15 years. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> the numbers are the numbers, man. Okay. So then you've got Lake Cornelia Research Management. That's the, on the handle there. So the focus, as far as the types of content that you, that you put out, what are the areas that you like to research? I like, well, well yeah, I, I post about stuff that obviously I feel like I have a view on. I cover a lot more than just that. But the idea, the core idea is really to provide clients with three to five big ideas. That was kind of, that's the Leon Cooperman. What is the role of an analyst? It's three to five big ideas a year and five to 10 trades. And that was my first two funds were single PM funds. Citadel is obviously a multi-manager different story, but it's single PM funds. You've got six to 10 people that had sort of my job, which is you're running multiple sectors. You've got a few junior people under you helping lead the sectors, but everything's going through the head guy. And how do you distill all of your coverage into three to five things? Because you can't get attention, nor are there more than that, you know, ideas in a year that you should really be trying to get the fund positioned into, get the capital deployed, get everybody on the same page as you, ramp up institutional conviction and so forth. So that's kind of how I sort of filter the world. I swim in the pools of sort of two two main pools. One, my historical industry expertise, I started as an energy guy. I actually started as a power plant guy. My first couple of years in distress, I was buying distressed power plants that were sort of the leftovers from the Enron era. And then during the global financial crisis and, and thereafter, I, I was covering, I think, the two biggest distress situations out there, TXU and Caesars at the time, as well as a bunch of other stuff. But I sort of see the world through my industry specialization, historic, which tilts a lot towards energy, commodities and whatnot, and then sort of the prism of event and credit. So even though I'm an equity guy today, I still see occasional credit stuff, but I'm trying to find either event-driven things. So one company's buying another and doing the non-ARP side, credit event-driven situation. So a company's in distress, there's a refinancing. Or the third area, which sort of I, I started learning at Citadel and I'm still learning to this day, which I'll put SPACs in there, is what I'll call euphemistically unseasoned equity. So that's recent IPOs, recent the last couple of years. SPACs obviously are basically just another public vehicle to go public. So the holder base isn't established. Market is unsure of how they're going to value this thing. And there's a huge wide range of outcomes. And you can find a few of those things and a little growth. You can do very well. You obviously can do very bad too. And I, I've had my share of those. All right. So let's deconstruct those. And, and I think actually it's interesting that energy and credit can be very related because a lot of the junk debt issuances tend to be also in the highly levered areas like drillers and mining and exploration type companies. So I'd argue you need to actually have commodity break for broader spreads to widen, which we'll touch on. But. As far as the energy sector goes, I mean, last year was pretty incredible in terms of how much it diverged. And this year, I'd argue, is pretty incredible in terms of how much it's giving back on a relative basis. 
What are your thoughts on the narrative last year when it came to energy as far as the idea that they're underinvestment, we're a secular bull market versus what we've seen you know, the last several months where old momentum going back to tech? Sure. I go back a little ways further. I, let's go back to 2014 because I, I think it's such a key moment in the market. You had OPEC way, you know, raise their hands and give up over Thanksgiving 2014. And that was the dawn. It was really the transition moment in shale where energy at that point, I think was 15% of the S&P 500. Just reams of people like myself, our meal ticket was energy. And you just had this moment where, you know, at that moment, I actually had an awesome trade on. I was just short everything in energy. It's Citadel and it was great. But there was this recognition that we're in a new paradigm. And within a couple of years, I actually had just, I, I almost just stopped covering energy because I, I thought it was nearly impossible and many people did. And you think about that 15% of the S&P 500 allocation or value or mix for energy in 2014, by the COVID low, I think we got down to 2%. And I really saw this, you know, I was at the hedge fund guy at Newberger and Newberger is just an amalgamation of, I think it's like 35 or 40 different teams running independent strategies, but certainly the, I'll call them the old school mutual fund, well, management guys that all run active. And I don't mean old as a pejorative, although many of them have been around a long time. They just didn't care. They said, look, we're, we track the S&P 500 and this is, you put on Exxon, you put on Chevron and you move on. Why would I invest any time trying to figure out the stuff? I can't be that big in energy because I'll accept way too much basis risk versus my benchmark. And, you know, the sector is toast anyway. And that was a really formative moment. And there were many at all the places I worked. And Newberger was really seeing how generalists track the S&P 500 and thinking about flows and how money comes in because most event trades are really, hey, this thing's dislocated. People are going to care later. And I finally got to see the other side of that trade. Well, anyway. Wait, wait, my, by the way, I will say real quick. I mean, what you're hitting on is, yeah, what's known as career risk, right? There's no incentive to veer. And the reality is, let's face it, it's been a cycle largely dominated of, with large cap strength. So anybody that's tried to do something different than what is number one is automatically number two. Cor oh, correct. And I mean, you think about it, well, I'll come back to the energy point, but just to go down this to complete the point you just made, which I think about all the time. Most people who track the S&P 500 for a living, and I'll call it 60-40 type people and sort of conservative money, have a quality tilt a value tilt and cap out their position somewhere between three and 4%. And you look at the S&P 500 today with Apple and Microsoft at 7%. Most of these people just on, you know, percent allocation to any stock are going to underperform because as long as this, these top 10 keep on outperforming or top 12 stocks, what, what have you, most active managers will underperform just by rule effectively. And these are people that only accept roughly a 3% deviation versus their benchmark. And they're just every year, they, I mean, it's happened for almost 13 years now. They've given away basically two to 300 basis points of performance, just the way that they run money before we got into stock selection. And we're, you know, for the rest of the year, we're in this sort of this dynamic, which I would agree with. You look at the gap between the SPY, SPY and RSP, RSP just being the equal weight. And I think it's about 9% right now, nine percentage points, not a difference. I'm remembering the number from Fridays. I know it's different today, but it, about S&P 500, we ended the day Friday, about up 15, the equal weight RSP up five. 
those guys are going to have to chase, but they're going to be limited to what they can chase because they can't go after the big tech because of the allocation size. So right. anyway. And, and real quick, sorry, I love this because this is this hits close to, for me, because how do you beat the S&P? You beat it by tilting small, you beat it by tilting international. But if you're in a cycle, which is just dominated by a select number of stocks, to your point, everybody chases them because if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Become the larger portion of the indices. And at some point that manifests into big risk because then everybody basically has what looks like a diversified index, but it's really just idiosyncratic. Yeah. I, I mean, well, you can make the funny point that I, I don't know if I'm the only one who makes it and I'm not trying to certainly look at the University of Chicago Business School called the Booth Business School. The guy Booth was able to donate $300 million literally on one concept that came from Eugene Fama, which is small caps outperform large caps. And if that Booth guy was born in 2010, he wouldn't have, I mean, he would have given up already. No, dude, no, yeah. You and I said podcast. I've even made that argument about Ray Dalio, a variation of that concept. It's like if risk parity would have been released into the world three years ago, he wouldn't be oh my God. 10 years ago because of what happened last year. Yeah. Like, it's all yeah. at the end of the day. And the timing, which you can't obviously get. That's the thing about cycles like this, right? Which is whether it's energy or large cap dominance, you don't know when it starts, you don't know when it ends. You know, at some point there's a change, but it's hard to, it's hard to manage a portfolio when you can't determine when the environment has a tailwind for what you do. Correct. And nor, I mean, I, I think the smart point is, nor should you think that you have to make that call. And this is really the argument for not going all in on one strategy because these things are very seasonal and nobody knows the answer and they're just going to go on. And like, it doesn't mean, you know, I, if you're talking about factor-based investing and some of these big things, small caps intuitively should outperform big caps over a long period of time. The standard deviation is a big number and you just got to, you just got to stick with it. So the risk is you've highlighted with the big cap stuff. I mean, it's obvious we're really concentrated. And let's tease it out again. So again, going back to the energy point, kind of going back full circle to that. So, so 2014, okay, now, like I said, you had a big, you had the capitulation moment with COVID when oil went negative. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I mean, oil goes negative and then... What you had with COVID, you, you sort of in 2019, people were like, okay, it's going to turn and all this distress money flew in 2017, 2018, 19. I looked at it a few times and I just said, now granted, I'm looking more at the equity side. And I just said, look, you meet with these management teams. And I just, in Newbury, you got to meet with a ton of management teams. They love coming in. And, and all these guys, I just kept saying to myself, these guys are all still out to lunch. They're all still spending. They all still think it's the pre-2014 world. You got guys on these boards of directors at energy companies making 500 grand a year. And that's like one board guy. And they're still doing silly stuff. There's no rationalization of supply. And you're like, this isn't going to work. And you really need COVID for energy specifically, and I'll say commodities in general, to find a bottom and rationalization. Because 
they all had this existential moment that finally came and they all got religion or just, and I'll say generally, I mean, you can see it across the energy swath. Look at the Baker who's recount every Friday, which is any change in economics. There is not one person being clownish. They're just all, okay, it's not economic anymore. We're cutting back right now. Just, and so we're going to be, I kind of, well, I don't know, Will's a strong word, but it seems like we're much more in a commodity environment. What analogous to when I started my career in 2022, 2023, which is, or sorry, 2002, 2003, which is you look at these stocks and you're like, wow, we're just going to make a lot of money. These just look like 20, 30% IRRs. And sort of the negative about energy this year is obviously post-Ukraine, the oil price just can't go any lower. I mean, we've gone from 120 to 70, we bounced below 70 and it's all terrible. But like you look underlying, you're like, okay, these stocks have had two awesome years. I'm saying energy generally, we're still, we're just kind of hanging out. And like, you know, I've got a few of my quote unquote benchmarks. You can look at Transocean that's just pretty liquid offshore driller. It just refuses to go below 550 a share. And there's a bunch of other examples like that where we're just building these really big bases that if we get any move in the commodity, you know, not up to 100, but just if 70, you know, starts looking a lot more like 80, these stocks are just going to start shooting to the moon again. And from a portfolio perspective, what a nice head. I mean, they were the leader the last two years. Now, it, I'd say they're really interesting tail risk trades that are going to work really well when the rest of your portfolio does not. By the way, this is also something I think is underappreciated about commodities versus, say, equities. You have far more left tail risk in equities and you have far more right tail risk in commodities because, you know, disruptions in supply cause price to to spike. You don't have disruption of supply with stocks, right? So it, it does make for an interesting barbell as far as tails. Now, I have to assume that Part of that thesis relies on, you know, China reaccelerating, right? Because at the start of the year, everyone's argument was China reopening is going to cause oil to moon again, right? And commodities are going to run. And that didn't happen. How important is Asia to sort of the longer term case here? Yeah, it depends where you are in energy and commodities. And this is sort of why I'm biggest in the drillers. And because in the drillers, you're long CapEx. You're really not long. I mean, you're always long price, but you're much more long CapEx. The driller thesis is, Round numbers, we've got 100 million barrels a day of oil supply and demand. And China's, I think China's 15.5 and it's ramping pretty quick. 10 years ago or 12 years ago, we used to be 85, went to 85 to 100. The move was two thirds China and the rest of EM and one third other stuff. And the supply was about two thirds covered by shale. Well, we're going to go from 100 to, I don't know if we're going to go to 115 in the next 10 years, but we're probably going to go to 107, 108. And you do the math at 105. And this is like my, my punchy thesis, which is we all die at 105. And my argument is 105 million barrels a day. My argument is shale has effectively peaked out in the US. We went from, you talk about the equity market being narrow. Shale production is way more narrow. It's like the Permian and there's nothing else. And the Permian, not that it's capped out, I just think it's reached, you know, sort of a plateau level. And you think about where that EM demand is going to keep going. It's not just China. It's like the rest of Asia. You look at India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, the Latin American six countries. Demand is growing a lot. The developed world, which is about, it's about 60, 55, 60% of demand. That's not really growing. And all, nor has it grown in the last 20 years. 
It's really these emerging economy areas. And as long as that keeps growing incrementally, and now we don't have the black swan of shale, that means that offshore LLC is going to need to be a lot more of the supply. And offshore shallow water is about 20 million barrels a day. Deep water is five. Deep water is also very, quote unquote, long cycle, meaning the investment cycle is much longer. It's years, not months. So the other negative of shale wasn't just that we found a ton of it. It's the duration of a shale well. You get all your money back in 45, 50 days. And so as the price started coming down, we were worried about price in 2014. What what corporations said was, look, we're not really in an upside price environment. We're more of a downside. I want to shorten duration a lot. No different than sort of a bond fund manager. We'll allocate all our capital to shale. Now that we sort of have this right tail risk and shale's peak, these guys have to make multi-year commitments to offshore. And that's just going to keep building and building on itself. It's also the offshore stuff because we haven't done anything for eight, nine years. These are sort of the best wells that you can do. The IRRs are massive. The break-evens are really low. And so we've cut the number of offshore rigs, you know, 50, 60%. We've rationalized the market. We're tr- you can buy these things today. Transocean's trading about 400, 400 million bucks a rig. Valeris, which has got some operating issues and some other weird stuff about it, is about 250 million a deep water rig, but that's the barbells of range. That's, you know, if you build a new one today, you're talking one, one to $1.2 billion in five years from the time you press start to the time you get the rig and you got to put down 60% day one effectively. I just look at it like, okay, these things are going to moon. We have no new build rigs coming. And I think I have enough demand. And I think I have enough price stability and OPEC has been resurgent, resurgent. They're now defending price again for the first time in eight years. I think we have enough to see offshore capex continue to march higher. And if it does, we're going to, the day rates these rigs are getting are just going to keep going up. When you think about that as a thesis, how much do these companies tend to co-move? Meaning is it better for somebody to consider, you know, an ETF like an IEZ, right? Not a best of luck and advice here, but. Yeah, for are there a lot of nuances in terms of just trying to do stock picking? The sector correlation and the sector alpha is going to dwarf the company alpha. And the way I love, I, thank you, man, for saying that because that's exactly the right answer. Yeah, continue. Yeah. And like, look, I can go really deep on this point. My, my meta point on it is I started the first two funds in credit. And the point I'm going to diverge to that we can touch for a little bit and then we'll come back to the trailer specifically is there's two types. You disaggregate stock returns. There's the general rule of 40-30-30. 40% market, 30% sector, 30% the company. Well, that's the general rule. Like you, you look across sectors, it can be wildly divergent. So when I was, my time at Citadel, the kings, if you will, of the floor on the long short equity were a lot of the consumer retail guys. And coming from credit, believe me, if you cover consumer retail and you're at a credit fund, you are not the best person. Those are terrible bankruptcies because if a consumer company goes under, there's just nothing there. So the person who's staffed to cover consumer just usually isn't the strongest person because there just isn't a lot of capital to be deployed. And then I go to sit it. I'm like, okay, that, that literally the head of equities at the time was the consumer PM. And what are those guys doing? Well, they're factor hedge, beta neutral and whatnot. In consumer retail, it's like 50% dispersion for the year is the earnings day. And these guys' job was to figure out, you know, earnings. And so they're like, 
you know, the company alpha is way bigger than the sector and way bigger than the market. And that's what a market neutral fund is looking for. Credit and, you know, it's a little bit, it's much more sector based because things tend to move together. And so that's my initial prism and specifically with energy and all commodities. Look, the sector beta is going to be way bigger than I would say even the market itself. I, these things are probably 50, 60% sector beta, 20% market, 20% company alpha. So find a few. It's always good to have a few. And if you can ignore or not own the really bad one, that's usually a better strategy than trying to figure out which is the best one. Uh, 100%. I'm so glad you say that. It's, uh, yeah, it, there's so many studies that show that asset allocation is what drives returns. You, know, you have to choose the right average, not the constituents of the average. And everyone on FinTwit at least tends to focus on individual story stocks, which you know can have big outsized returns, but that's not sort of the norm, you know, to your point. Um, let me just reset the room for everybody here. Please make sure you follow Judd Arnold here on Twitter. But if you want to come up and ask questions during the reigning minutes, click that bottom left mic request button. And again, this will be a podcast under lead lag live. Okay. So, yeah, so, so now we go up to where we are now, right? So energy, strong year last year, seemed like you'd have a real move. And now all the momentum players have gone into tech. And I keep saying FOMO is more powerful than the Fed. So we'll see if rates end up breaking those animal spirits at some point. But do you think that the longer term case is at all? I think the longer term case is as good, if not better. I mean, certainly on the offshore guys, there's only one way this is ending. And it's, in my opinion, higher. And maybe that's a too strong a statement, but I've never seen a cycle where there's no new build to order book and nobody's ordering. The top of the last few offshore drilling cycles has been a 30 to 35% order book as it relates to the current fleet. You just can't build a rig right now. And so when you're buying these things, generally speaking, at 25 to 30% of replacement cost, and they have a useful life, in my opinion, still of another 30 years. Now, granted, the average offshore driller company owns rigs that are 10 years old. And historically, they used to scrap these things at 20 to 25 years. However, there's a lot of cases that you can run these assets for 40 years. I mean, they get a little more expensive after year 20, 25, but you can run them for that long. And I think that's what we're going to do this cycle. And so you think you have an underlying asset, 25, 30, 30 years of life left. New build economics, round numbers is probably, you know, 700,000 a day rig rates, maybe, you know, around there, I'd say. And we're currently at mid fours. I mean, you just get the big numbers. And I'll give you some specifics. Transocean, for example, you put a five and a half times multiple on 550 terminal day rates. You use the forward net debt. I'm using either 25 or 26. I got to check my model. And yeah, that's maybe a little aggressive, but that sort of gets you to 16, 17 bucks a share. The stock's currently six. It's not, you know, Valeris, not hard. Tidewater, which is my biggest exposure and offshore, that's boats that move the supplies to the rigs, but still the same thesis. I mean, Tidewater stock, I think they, they announced the bond deal yesterday. They're closing an acquisition stock, 40, about 45. Tidewater at new build economic parity. So the rates you would need to get to incentivize somebody to get new build at you know, about a 12 to 13% underlying return on capital. You get to north of $20 a share of free cash flow for Tidewater. Stock 45. And most cycles peak actually at premiums to new build economics. So the way I think about it, it's really, okay, when are we get, are, one, are we going to get there? I believe we are. Two, when are we going to get there? Well, with Tidewater, we're going to get there sooner because their contracts are shorter duration because it's boats, not, boats, not rigs. 
And what price am I paying right now? And you're like, wow, we're paying two times peak. It's not bad. And these things are going to really cash flow for a long period of time. The cycle should be longer because we just the lack of new build just seems really interesting exposure. And I contrast that with the EMPs. And you can look at XOP as sort of the diversified EMP ETF or XLE, which I don't like looking at because XLE is just Chevron and Exxon. But you don't have the same decline rate as with offshore drillers as you do with producers where the wells deplete you know, 7 8% a year. There's a constant need to reinvest. With offshore, you know, both the drillers and the boats, if we inflect, like these things don't have a lot of maintenance capex. The asset's got a lot of life left. And you can really see a scenario where these things, you know, trade very well. Let's connect that to the credit market. I want to talk what I alluded to a little bit earlier, which is that, yeah, it seems from my own studies that there's a link between credit spread, blowouts, and in general, just, you know, commodity prices. Meaning if you get a precipitous decline of commodities, it actually tends to increase default risk at the margin for high levered miners and exploration type of companies. Where are we in the credit cycle? I mean, a lot of people have talked about correctly so this idea that spreads have been relatively tight in the context of the excess rate high cycle in history. If you're going to be a long-term believer in energy and commodities, you know, that probably keeps spreads tight, but you're fighting against, you know, rollovers of highly levered entities. So how do you think about credit risk and the longer term sector? There really isn't credit risk, I say, in energy and commodities, mostly because these guys, because of ESG and because with the bear market was so long, these guys can't get money and they haven't been able to. And so they've had to pivot to being equity funded. I mean, I'll go back to Tidewater specifically. They're doing a bond, unsecured bond deal right now in the market to finance a $580 million acquisition. They got personally banked at, at about 8.5%. They just launched an unsecured bond. That's going to price 10 to 11%, maybe, maybe a little bit higher than 11. I'm not sure where, where we are. But you think about the LTV of that loan, you know, just versus the market cap. I and mean, this thing's going to be, you know, it's 50 million shares, 40, 45 bucks. You know, you got north of 2 billion of equity behind What's going to be 500 million bucks of debt? You're like, really? You know, the 20% LTV layer is going to be 11 to 12% cost of capital. It's just crazy. And it's just because you can't borrow money. I mean, Valeris did a secure deal. Valeris has got no debt, same sort of, you know, debt to market cap LTV math as Tidewater, where you're like, really the 12%, 20% LTV layer, secure debt. And I'm talking Valeris now is eight and a half percent. This makes no sense. And these guys are years past the time when the credit market said no moss. And so when you see a levered energy company today, it's usually just a really bad thing. And I think on balance, credit is availability is going to start expanding to energy. And I think the point that you were touching on with sort of maturity walls, that's really more market generally. And I think it's equally scary. We're going to talk about banks later. And I guess we can talk about it now, which is the credit picture generally, it's tough. You've got bank balance sheets are contracting and rightly so. We had a flood of deposits. They bought a bunch of assets. They lost a bunch of money on those assets because the interest rate move served the markets upside down a little bit. And generally credit availability is a lot lower. Now, I think specific markets are healing a little bit here and there. But credit all else equal, it, it's just a higher cost of credit. It's certainly crushing for legacy private equity portfolios, legacy loan portfolios, you see that in the BDC market. 
I've been saying for a while that one of the most attractive things you could do right now is probably launch into Novo BDC. It doesn't have the legacy book and there's a lot to do with sort of new issue stuff. And we're seeing a bunch of those. There's a bunch of offerings from some sharp guys. So if you're interested in that, shoot me a DM. I can point you to some smart guys. But I think that's going to be a thing that we've repriced credit. But I go back as well, like at the start of my career in credit and distress, and now I'm going to sort of 05, 06, 07. I mean, the risk-free rate back then was, I don't know, 5 6%. And we had one of the biggest LBO booms of all time on the back of really expensive 10 11% debt. So it's not like the market can't adjust to that. Early 80s, I'll give you, you know, one of the funnier things is, I forget whether it was 81, 82, or 83, but Berkshire Hathaway did a bond deal at 12%. And in the annual report, Buffett was extolling how excited he was about getting 12% debt and how great it was for Berkshire's franchise. And you tell that to somebody born after 2010 or started their career after 2010, they'd be like, 12%, you're out of your mind. I was like, yeah. And Buffett built Berkshire from there. Okay. So I think all these things adjust, but it's certainly harder today. But I guess I'm here in my tone. I'm a little more bullish because the other side of this, it's better than it's been all year in the credit market because we priced in this recession or depression, I think six times now in the last two years. And the longer it doesn't happen, things open up. So it's sort of been a summer of new issuance. We've got the IPMO market's pretty open. We had KV, is it KVUE? Yeah, KVUE went well. That was a big IPO. There was ATMU. It was a nice IPO. And then obviously Kava last week. Now we've got the IPO market open and the credit market's been open. So yeah, I think the rate thing's real. I think it's most real for the private equity guys that have tons of floating rate debt and mid-cap companies. But Oh, we get through all that stuff. I don't disagree. And I, well, I'm the first one to say it's been tricky. My, my thesis all along has been that if you're going to have this wall of rollovers coming you know, next year, the market should probably start to discount it at some point this year, right? If it's just from a discounting mechanism standpoint, you should think the bond market will start to act on it, but it clearly hasn't. And you can make a case that now you're entering a period where people are just so ballsy in thinking that credit is never going to be a problem because we just went through a supposed retail bank crisis that was a nothing burger. Yeah, I think to make a few more points on credit and specifically, let's talk about mid-cap and companies with floating rate debt and the BDC market, which has been beat up. Oddly, there's many moments in credit where time is kind of the friend of the lender, which is you. what you don't want in credit is a COVID-like event or a global financial type crisis type event where things are fine and then just overnight they get really bad. And COVID, obviously a total wax swan in the financial crisis, you can debate whether that was obvious before and whether you should have positioned for that, but certainly a massive change overnight in a multi-month, you know, in a couple month period where you went from luscious availability of credit to there is no credit. And that's what COVID was too. Today, it's much more analogous to a historical distress scenario, which is, it's going to take years to play out and the lenders are going to incrementally on every chess move for the companies that eventually go under. You're going to look back and you're going to say, okay, they did two or three rescue financings over four years and the creditors effectively, you know, they took a few, took time, but the creditors got control of the business and they took it from the equity guys. That's one path. There's another path, which is the longer these things go, okay, you give yourself time, especially with the cyclical business that can recover you can get a moment where, all right, things are good enough that you can push out and you can refinance. And let's use Oxy as an example, a big cap debt thing, which 
sort of nearly died after the Anadarko acquisition. Stock went down to 10 bucks, highly, I mean, effectively a public company, LBO, an energy company, you know, in late 2020, sort of recovered to an initial level with oil price going up in mid 2021. And then with the Ukraine thing, was able to just fully delever. And now is just a, you know, your typical boring ENG chemical company. And so you can get that with cyclicals. And I think that's sort of an opportunity if you believe in the long drawn out thesis, which I do, that some of these levered ones are actually going to work out pretty well. And it's sort of an interesting pocket of the market. Judd, for those that um, want to track some of your thoughts and research, aside from Twitter, are there other places that people can find it? I post, you know, memos occasionally on some zero and Twitter. Just reach out if you want to chat. So I love engaging with smart people. I guess a good place to wrap the Twitter space up. Again, I'll have this in the podcast. Thank you, Judd. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.